0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. Stephen Taylor, the author of The Psychology of Pandemics, spoke with us about COVID-19. Also, Dr. Christian Luprecht from Queen's University and the Royal Military College on Canada's crises, and that's in multiples. Also, the politicizing of police, and is our national unity in this country fragile? Ellis Ross is a British Columbia member of the provincial legislature. He is also a First Nations counselor, and he says the blockade set back reconciliation by 20 years. Michael Sussman is the CEO of a marketing firm called VMLY Plus R. Why is this interesting? Because they just completed two surveys on Canada's position in the world. First of all, for quality of life, and then Canada's overall position in the world. I think you'll like what you hear from Mr. Sussman. And then finally, the Brompton Corporation's Laura Lau, who assists in managing $2 billion in investment assets, Talk to us about whether or not, after Tech Mine's ending its interest in the Alberta oil sands, whether investors are really interested in the oil sands any longer. Dr. Taylor, thank you very much for taking uh, the time. And would it help? Would it? Does it matter whether the World Health Organization says that there's a high risk and great concern about COVID-19? or whether they declare it a pandemic. It does does it really make a difference psychologically?
2: Uh, well, it probably makes a little bit of a difference, but at this point, probably not a huge difference. Uh, calling it a pandemic will heighten people's um, anxiety to some extent, because that's a, an emotionally laden word. And so it may, may make a bit of a difference, but you know, it's essentially a pandemic already at the moment.
0: Your book is uh, the psychology of a pandemic. Now, what exactly um, does the does does the pandemic or does COVID nineteen do to people? How does it change who we are, perhaps how we live? How does it change the structure of our of our hospitals and our governments? Because everything is affected. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you just heard me say when I went into the store last evening, I couldn't believe how much had been cleared out of that store already. Yeah. Uh, people's
2: reactions are going to uh, change over time and we're in the very early stages of the threat and so we're getting some anticipatory anxiety, uh, rising racism and and now we're getting um, some panic buying but uh, I think it's really hard to say how things will pan out. It really depends on, on how rapidly or the extent to which the infection spreads across Canada
0: how do uh how should people deal with what with, with what is going on because what we do on a, on a regular basis is we trade what information we maybe think we have or things we've heard uh, we trade it with somebody else, and the story, as you well know, becomes mm-hmm. bigger and and more involving and sometimes more frightening and so the anxiety level raises rises what should people do
2: um Really, uh, I guess under times of uncertainty, we're going to expect rumors to arise and um, people need to be media savvy uh, or social media savvy. Uh, if you hear stories circulating, ask yourself, is, is this, does this have any, any basis in fact? So that's one thing people can do. Another thing is, uh, you know, listen to what the health authorities are recommending. If they're recommending washing your hands and saying you don't need a face mask at this point, listen to what these people have to say. But there's no need for panic or panic buying at this point.
0: You have concerns about racism?
2: Yeah, well, we, we saw it, it became a problem in the early phases of the outbreak with racism directed towards Chinese people. Um, however, I, I suspect that that will die down as the, if the infection spreads widely. Uh, if everyone is infected, then the, <laughs> there's no point in being racist. So I would I think the racism would abate over time hopefully.
0: If we uh, if we look at your book, where are your greatest concerns about how, again, the title, The Psychology of Pandemics, How, how, how What's your greatest concern about how it changes not only who we are, but what we do and where we do it? And I'm talking now about part of it is the healthcare system. The other part of it is trusting the people who are there to manage as much as possible our affairs and provide us with truth, and that's government and health authorities.
2: Yeah. Um, well i guess one of the concerns is uh, are we prepared for the influx of worried well into hospitals i don't think we are prepared Uh, this has happened before in previous pandemics and previous outbreaks that people will misinterpret minor coughs and sniffles as uh, signs that they might have the pandemic might have COVID 19 rather Um, and so that causes a what's called a hospital surge or increase in in people presenting to the hospital uh, thinking they have uh, COVID-19 when they don't. So we're not really prepared for that. That's one of the important things.
0: Are we getting the information that we require? I mean, what's what's the what are the responsibility of the public health authorities and of government to provide people with information? Because the more information we have, probably I would like to think that more psychologically we become capable of dealing with what's in front of us. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, The WHO have their own guidelines on on this, and their guidelines are announce information early and acknowledge when there's uncertainties. And I think they're doing that, and that's really important because it's critical that uh, the public trusts the health authorities. If the public loses faith in the health authorities, they're not going to follow uh, recommended guidelines.
0: There's a lot said about quarantine and isolation and we're seeing it start in different parts of the world where areas where people would normally gather are starting to become off-limits. And there's mm-hmm. talk about the Tokyo Olympics potentially being canceled uh, this summer. Um, how, does, how does quarantine and isolation affect us, and what are the concerns there?
2: Uh, well, there are a couple of ways. If you haven't stocked up on supplies of food or medicine and you have to be quarantined, then that could create some some hardship. Uh, in previous pandemics, there were problems with social isolation and loneliness, but that might not be as big a problem this time around because people are connected through social media and so forth. I think uh, a, a more pressing problem would be people adhering to the guidelines for, for um, uh self-imposed isolation or not gathering in large groups because studies from previous pandemics have found that uh, some people just don't follow the guidelines. They go out and socialize even when they're sick. We don't want that happening.
0: And if you're someone who, and I've heard this by the way as well, somebody says, well, I don't want to go to the gym anymore because everybody's there and they're working out and they're sweating and they're using the same equipment. I can't trust that environment anymore. My concern is, that if you have, if you, if you shut various avenues of tension release, and that's one of them, um, you're only, I don't know, is, is that a sensible thing to do or are you going to harm yourself?
2: Yeah, I think we need to listen to what the health authorities are saying. I think going to the gym at this point is perfectly safe. Uh, viruses don't live for very long on, on bare surfaces, you know, perhaps hours at most. So as long as you practice good uh, hand hygiene, and wash your hands and so forth, I think uh, the gym would be fine. And I think, that, as you point out, it's really important that people carry on as normal as far as they can, including um, doing all the stress management things that they used to do.
0: As you watch people in your daily life, as you um, make your way around the city of Vancouver or British Columbia or on the campus at mm-hmm. UBC, have you noticed a change in people and how they behave and how they, how they, how they how they behave toward one another?
2: But it's interesting. A lot of people just don't even think about it. They don't think it seems like something that's just too far away for them to imagine. Mm -hmm. So there are those people whose lives haven't been affected at all. But I do see an increase in people wearing face masks, um, unnecessarily so. But, yeah, that's increased. Um, And there have been some reports of panic buying of groceries and so forth. I saw that last
0: night. I saw that last night.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, social media. You mentioned social media two minutes ago. What's the mm-hmm. role social media can play positively, and and where do people draw? Should, I mean, I'm asking you the obvious questions, but mm-hmm. I think they need to be asked. Where do people draw the line for their own psychological well-being as far as consulting social media is concerned?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. That's pretty much an individual choice. Social media can be really important in connecting people, especially if you're a you're in uh, uh, isolation or quarantine that can be important and but inevitably rumors will start to circulate so you need to be careful um, uh, in terms of how you appraise those sorts of things um, <clears throat> it is a two-edged sword and there have been discussions of, of social media um, um, imp- applying some forms of uh, censorship to certain posts so posts promoting conspiracy theories and so forth and um, that's a really tricky situation so that's
0: uh, an important consideration. Um, Dr. Taylor, from your book, what what's the most significantly? I, I mean, your entire book I, I find fascinating. Yeah. But what's the significantly yeah. most important single message that comes out of the book?
2: the The most important message is that pandemics are essentially psychological phenomena. That sure, we might have vaccines or antivirals, but in the at the end of the day. Uh, the, the spread of infection and the containment infection is purely due to psychological factors. That is, people agreeing to uh, socially isolate themselves, agreeing to um, get vaccinated, and the whole thing. So I think that's the take-home message.
0: Did we learn anything during the SARS outbreak of 2003 that we can apply at this particular time during the development of COVID-19, or at least the development of our knowledge about it,
2: Uh, One one of the things we learnt during the SARS outbreak was that some people developed very severe anxiety disorders. Some people developed post-traumatic stress disorder that persisted long after they'd recovered from SARS. So that's an important lesson we need to remember. And so we should be uh, assessing people for anxiety-related problems, and we should not treat them lightly. We should not assume that their anxiety will abate once they recover, because that might not be the case.
0: The fear factor, uh, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with, and I hear this repeatedly, oh, if you get uh, COVID-19, you're going to die. And I said, no, you're, you're not going to die. The okay. statistical information is that the vast majority of people who do actually end up uh, contracting COVID-19 are going to recover from it and go on quite well with their lives. This is true. But it's still a concern. It's still a concern people have. It's the fear response that, uh, that folks that folks carry with them. Um, yeah, um,
2: yes, you're absolutely right.
0: So, so what do we do with that? How do we, you know, things are going to happen over the next weeks and months? We're, we're told to expect there we'll see more presence of COVID 19. So, if you're already afraid, what do people, what should people do? How, how can you manage your fear? What's the most fundamental thing you can do
2: uh, for people who are getting very distressed by the news of COVID 19? Um, one option is to limit the amount of time you spend um, exposed to media or social media reports of the virus Um, use all the coping strategies you used to you do use for coping with stress or anxiety and if that doesn't work then perhaps you could um, see your local doctor and get a referral to see a mental health practitioner such as a psychologist because although we might not have a vaccine for COVID-19 right now we do have effective treatments for anxiety about
0: COVID-19. Um, Angus Reid poll showed uh, one of three Canadians doesn't have a great deal of confidence in mm. provincial health services and provincial health um, organizations to take care of what needs to be taken care of in the in the outbreak. And that says to me, a lot of Canadians feel like they're on, in, in this alone.
2: Yeah, that's a communication issue, and health authorities need to to take efforts to um, reassure people that all the necessary steps are being taken. That said, however, it's very difficult to predict what kind of burden COVID nineteen will place on the Canadian healthcare system. So there is some uncertainty, and maybe that's the the biggest thing people have to live with at the moment. The biggest problem is living with that uncertainty.
0: Yeah, when when you hear self isolation. Uh, that's worrisome because your instincts are, or your, um, you know, the way you do things normally is, if you don't feel well, and you become increasingly unwell, you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital. Well, our hospitals are already at 100% capacity. We know mm-hmm. that. And so now a person gets the feeling: Well, I—if if anything happens to me, I've been told to quarantine myself for two weeks. Look at—am do, do, I on my own on, on this and that? Really, just in some people, many people, maybe not all people, but in many people, that's going to raise their anxiety levels.
2: Absolutely, I, I agree entirely. And so again, health authorities need to send a clear message to people that if you're self-isolating and you're starting to develop um breathing difficulties or other severe symptoms. Um, there needs to be someone that they can call and they need to be able to have faith that, that someone will come to help them if they are experiencing uh, severe symptoms.
0: We just don't know yet, do we? We just don't know where we are. We we can't be precise but it but it's 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 not something that we can just let meander through our our systems and through our psychological systems. We have to take steps to prepare ourselves for what may come. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But if it does, then then we're at least somewhat prepared.
2: Exactly. If you go out and buy two weeks' worth of non-perishable food items, that food's still going to be around. It's not a big deal. But I think the biggest challenge coming up is one that hasn't been discussed by the health authorities yet, and that is the issue of vaccination inherence. Um, when they do develop a vaccine for COVID-19, research from previous pandemics has shown that most people don't bother to get vaccinated. If this happens this time around, then the vaccine is not going to be very effective.
0: No, I mean, it's going to take some time for the vaccine, we're told, but it, when it's av- available, uh, for goodness sake, get vac- vaccinated. Christian, thank you very much for, for the time. and. Um, when we look at – if you look at what, what has taken place from the very beginning of the issue of the rail blockades to where we are now, I want to talk to you about it in, in you know in, in, in specific segments. But an overall perspective, what's the overall perspective as you look at the police, you look at the prime minister, you look at the blockaders, you look at the laws of this country and how it's all evolved?
1: We had it coming uh... we knew that this was going to be a challenge Uh, people have written about this becoming a challenge as far as a dozen years back uh... both in scholarly fashion and in the form of uh... political thrillers and novels uh... and it was disappointing how relatively unprepared all sides were for a confrontation that i think we didn't need to have and that in the end left people in uniform having to pick up the pieces for failures in political strategy, political leadership, um, and the ability to anticipate um, that um, there were small minorities that still felt aggrieved over this significant um, project. Uh, plus the uh, relatively amorphous way we refer to things like reconciliation or um, uh, climate change policy, whatnot, that these mean very different things to very different people. And so uh, when you're trying to then negotiate settlements, reach deals, it means by being imprecise about what we mean by those concepts, Uh, we open it up to everybody to use them to assert their grievances, which then makes it uh, next to impossible for government to try to negotiate um, meaningful ways forward.
0: How would you assess the performance of the prime minister and the cabinet and the entire government of Canada?
1: Um
0: start with the Prime Minister.
1: They found themselves in a, I mean, this is a government that has found itself stumbling from crisis to crisis. Uh, Some of those self-inflicted, some of those due to um, outside circumstance. And I got a sense that the compound effect of all these crises left uh, both the cabinet and the civil service somewhat um, overwhelmed and that we didn't do this sort of strategic analysis um, that we should have done, in part because Canada, for the last 20 years, 25 years, has not had a capacity for systematic strategic analysis. Um, our allies, such as the UK uh, and Australia, of course, the United States, have a systematic capacity within government uh, to plan for and anticipate these sorts of challenges. In Canada, we decided that we didn't really want to pay for this, that this was too expensive to employ a couple of hundred people. Uh, to prepare for this, and so that then means uh, rather than being proactive in anticipating the sort of fires that might break out, we then find ourselves uh, having to firefight uh, on the fly, Um, and as this became a moving target and various interest groups started piling on, um, it meant the target kept on shifting, which made it rather difficult than for the government to find a coherent effort. And you could see this by the way that um, we have, for instance, just the communication strategy by the government that, by my count, included at least six different ministers and the prime minister uh, at times uh, not singing from the same song sheet. Uh, and I think that uh, indicates that uh, there was. Uh, not the coordination uh, that we might have had um, on the file and uh, the leadership that we might expect from any one particular ministry, because usually when you have a crisis, it is one minister and ministry that will take the leadership. And here it seems um, everybody was trying to weigh in with their best ideas. And of course, when you're facing a crisis, uh, that's not particularly helpful. You want to make sure you have one clear target, one clear message, and one (laughs) clearing.
0: Christian, when we come to the end of this particular episode in our history, given all the things that have happened, the uh, we've watched police, watch uh, blockaders, we've seen a prime minister who was, in the words of Ken Coates from the University of Saskatchewan on this program, timid. We've seen um, division on the First Nations side of the issue. Are we in worse shape than we were when it began, in a, in a generic sense?
1: harkens to the lack of political leadership in general that we've seen um, in this country on controversial issues, because people are more concerned about governing by polls and winning the next uh, election than they are about setting a clear tone and a clear vision of also where they want the country to be 5, 10, or 20 years from now. Um, and this has made it all the more difficult because, as you pointed out before the break, um, effectively, the government has now created perverse incentives where the people that are uh, in a small minority within the country and which themselves um, uh, use uh, the freedoms, uh, rights, and legitimacy that we enjoy to undermine those same rights and uh, and those same freedoms because, of course, um, they believe that only their view is correct and uh, they're happy to dispense with everyone else's view and dismiss everyone else's view. Uh, it now means that uh, those uh, those folks now have an incentive on any other policy issue to go out and engage in... Uh, the sort of massive disruptive action that we have seen. And so I think the strategy from the beginning should have been that, look, uh, civil disobedience is okay, but uh, clearly illegal action, um, let alone bad action arguably in the latter days, uh, has even involved some forms of at least symbolic violence by setting a light um, uh, crates and uh, um, and and whatnot in interfering with uh, with train travel in a in a more violent way that that's simply not acceptable and those are folks that we can't um, we can't talk to at the same time the federal government can't be always called upon to what is arguably an internal governance dispute um, within certain. Um, uh, First Nations, and to arbitrate um, those internal governance disputes. Um, and when it comes to reconciliation, um, now we've opened up a big can of worms about what that actually means. Whereas I think, from a simple perspective, at least as most nations out west would say, it's economic development. If we're concerned about the Indian Act and getting First Nations out from under the Indian Act, then we need to make sure that they have the opportunity to uh, fend for themselves economically and uh, and development. You know, it's it's easy to. It's easy to criticize pipelines and whatnot when you're sitting uh, in urban Toronto and you have lots of nice jobs and you have a nice car, but when you don't have a lot of options in many parts of rural Canada, the situation looks uh, looks very different, and so I think um, there's a real problem with um, respecting the democratic processes that we've set up, and that um, uh, when you're on the losing side, we respect the outcomes because the next time when um, someone we disagree with is on the winning side, we want to respect their uh, outcomes and their legitimacy. And so I think we've gotten ourselves into a real pickle yeah. in terms of democratic governance in this country.
0: You know, uh, the regional disparities, or the, the regional differences in Canada are very evident on this program because we broadcast both in central Canada and in western Canada. And the points of view that I that I see, that I hear, that I read, are so opposite and so uh, unaligned so frequently. And the question of national unity has come up. The question about whether or not there is actually unity in this country, whether this country is going to survive. You know, there's a separatist movement that is growing, or at least an emotion and a movement growing in Western Canada. What do you say about um, the national unity issue in this country? What concerns you?
1: Well, this is, of course, an ongoing saga about Canada. Um, the constitution that we have today came out of a total political paralysis in the, uh, in the 1850s. Um, and uh, look, if you look at the regional diversity, geographic diversity, the ethnic and linguistic diversity in this country uh, it 's amazing that this country is able to hold together, let alone has been able to prevail as one of the oldest democracies, uh, and is able to set a tone for the world about how we can reconcile unity in uh, diversity. but that has always meant politicians have had to be pragmatic about how they reconcile differences, and when we start to govern in ideological fashion. Um, at the cost of pragmatism, uh, that's when we start to see these massive um, differences come to the fore. And so I think there's a real need to uh, step back from what the current government calls sort of its values agenda um, and start to think more pragmatically about um, how we reconcile different interests uh, rather than asserting one set of values over another set of values.
0: Uh, Are are we we getting uh, the bang for our buck from the prime minister, uh,
1: ultimately, somebody is going to have to provide um, a leadership uh, in this in this clearly diverse country. And I think when you have a civil service and you have a cabinet, and in particular the senior decision makers within cabinet, that all come from the uh, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa triangle, that certainly doesn't help in taking to account a broader diversity of. Views. And we've seen with previous cabinet ministers uh, that have not come from that triangle and spoken up about issues in ways that does not conform uh, to the orthodoxy of the Toronto-Ottawa-Montreal uh, urban downtown triangle, uh, that they are then ousted from a cabinet. And I think that speaks volume for the need uh, to return to a more broad-based uh, consensus, pragmatist approach about how we approach governance uh, across the country that serves uh, all Canadians, regardless of what province they live in and whether they live in rural or urban areas.
0: I wish I had more time. We have less than a minute. So would you just give me a sense, please, of uh, the the issues around COVID-19 and uh, Canadians' dependence on their governments? We have about 35 seconds for that one.
1: Uh, the lesson here is that uh, rather than just think about this as a virus is that we live in challenging uh, international times, uh, whether it's climate change or, or it's, uh, it's floods or forest fires or viruses. Uh, and that we all need to be prepared to be resilient on our own um, and not over-rely on government. And uh, and the government provides a very good website to this extent, so getprepared.gc.ca that provides lots of guidance for Canadians in how to make sure they can always sustain themselves for a few days on their own in times of crisis.
0: Always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's talk to uh, Ellis Ross, served six years as chief counselor of the Heisler Nation in British Columbia, an early advocate in his community about the potential benefits of select kind of resource development. Uh, In the case of the Heisler Nation, this is the $40 billion Kitimat LNG plant operated by Chevron. Uh, Mr. Ross, thank you very much for the time. You've uh, certainly gotten a lot of attention in this country uh, over the last well, days and certainly weeks, um, over this developing, uh, this moving target of the, the blockades and, and reconciliation. What do you make of uh, what's come out of Smithers today?
4: Well, there's not much to make out of it, except for the, the people that really should be congratulated, should be put up front and center, and Canada should thank them directly.
0: Um, th- does, this, does this effectively change everything or, or not?
4: Well, it depends what the agreement is. Is, is, it, is it agreement on process or is it agreement on money? Uh, well, what is the agreement made up of? Uh, but number one, is it, it comes back to a fundamental principle that I've always believed in, is that really any type of leadership is only there at the will of the people. In this case here, the and people, the matriarchs, matriarchs in training, they change the conversation and they should be thanked. All candidates should be thanking them.
0: This didn't need to go on as long as it did, did it? Well,
4: you know, I've said it before. All these politicians playing with rights and title and uh, all these people uh, using misinformed information about what happened here in the last 15 years, they're the ones to blame. It's not the protesters. It's the the manipulators that organize these protests. It's the people, the the, the lawyers out of Toronto, that actually didn't even understand what happened here. In fact, I think all Canadians should understand this. My band, the Heisman Nation, we worked on LNG for six years, and we pushed this pipeline on the BC government. It wasn't the other way around. So these these people are going around saying, "Oh, we got to stop pushing pipelines and these projects on First Nations." Actually, you should you should talk to somebody who was there from day one. And I fought hard along with my chief and council to get the BC government to actually push LNG to Asian markets.
0: Has this um, this? This development, the last several weeks, has this really pitted First Nations against First Nations, Indigenous against Indigenous peoples, more so than, than, than we might have seen in recent history in this country? Oh, definitely. Uh, we know that directly. You
4: know, We're not talking about nations against nations. We're talking about people on Twitter and Facebook, uh, Aboriginals, calling down other Aboriginals. I mean, you, sh- you should see some of the messages, I right guess. And this is from uh, this is from people who claim to be respectful First Nations. And it just goes to show you that amount a lot of violence that goes on between members. I mean, we're, we're getting to the point now where communities are starting to actually work together more and more often. But it's the people behind the scenes that are dividing us.
0: Um, what's going to happen now, do you think? Yeah, the construction yeah. The is going to continue, going to start up again. So what happens? Do we go back? Does it go back to where we were? Will there be blockades again? Will, will we have a, a, a federal government that seemingly doesn't really know what to do and and police forces in Ontario, certainly the OPP, politicized? Is that, do you expect that to take place?
4: It all depends on the details of this agreement. It all depends. And, you know, if, if, if the agreement does settle out, well, what... Uh, Well, what the issues were in the first place, there's got to be a level of fairness there to all the other First Nations who willingly signed Mm -hmm. LNG agreements over the last 15 years. Will that agreement apply to them as well? And number two, all those uh, organizations that use this issue for their own agendas, will they stop blockading? That's the number one question.
0: You're talking about the environmental groups?
4: The environmental groups and whoever else there that actually uh, amplified this message because I've been trying to figure out if the Wet'suwet'en people themselves didn't send out the message to shut down Canada, if Aboriginals didn't send out that message, if all 20 elected leaders that signed agreements with LNG along the pipeline route, if they didn't send out that message to shut down Canada, who exactly sent this message out? Who actually gave the order?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's it's really ultimately, we're just talking economics here. If we could just focus on that for a moment. The economics for the first nations peoples of an lng project such as uh the the one we're we're talking about and the one in in your community the economic realities for first nations peoples are extremely beneficial are they not not only in the short term but also in the long term
4: uh in the long term and a lot of first nation computers will not disclose the agreements that they signed with uh, these lng companies but uh from the ones i've talked to first nation leaders over the years about the benefits the, the, they they are happy. It, it goes far and beyond, beyond uh, what the Indian Act actually provides. In fact, if anything, a lot of these First Nations leaders were were talking about true independence based on experience. and it's not just LNG. It's been forestry. It's been mining. It's been uh, anything else that comes down in relation to the infringement of Federal rights and title. In fact, I don't. In this day and age, I don't see a lot of First Nation leaders in Northwestern BC. Complaining about the Indian Act because it just doesn't matter anymore. They, they they found a way out without having to fight the Indian Act.
0: What has the uh, Kitimat LNG plant and project meant to the Heisler Nation?
4: Oh, everything that we've complained about as Aboriginals for the last forty years, starting with uh, Section Thirty Five of the Constitution. Uh, you want to get out from underneath the Indian Act? Okay, this provides a way out. You want to provide jobs and opportunity for your members? This provides it. You want to provide revenues to your band so you can turn around and spend those resources on your community and your members all across BC? This provides it. It answers just about every question that we've been fighting. In fact, when I started to realize the path we were on as is nation, I did two things. I stopped us from fighting the Indian Act, and then I took us out of BC treaty negotiations because we were accomplishing everything that we wanted to accomplish. Through engaging with the crown and uh, proponents of these projects
0: you've said that uh, the blockades and you've also told us that you've been receiving some communications from uh, fellow First Nations peoples who strongly disagree with you Uh, you've also said that these blockades set back reconciliation 20 years how so well because we have a Prime Minister who says the word over and over and over
4: well I depends on whose definition you're using i mean i don't don't think these politicians truly understand what reconciliation means Uh, i don't care if you're the prime minister or the 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 premier bc i don't care if you're an activist in alberta i don't care if you're a lawyer in toronto if we can fundamentally agree that reconciliation definition comes from rights and title case law okay there's a starting point that's the definition we should be using not 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 it shouldn't be used for every single reason in the world to shut down projects in fact, if anything, reconciliation definition means bringing two parties together.
0: Exactly, that's what I was back thinking. Together, I was thinking right? the same thing.
4: But, but if you look at case law, the case law says, "Look, you got to go above and beyond to consult and accommodate First Nations interests."
0: Mr. Ross, that's let me get you. Let me. I'm sorry to do this. Let me get you to hold on. We're going to come back with Ellis Ross. <music> Let me just uh, repeat from Global News, a proposed agreement on land rights and title has been reached between Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and government ministers, bringing three long days of negotiations in northern B.C. to an end and tentatively resolving a long-standing dispute over the First Nations' traditional territory. Yet the forward-looking agreement reached between the chief's federal crown indigenous relations minister, Carolyn Bennett, and her B.C. counterpart, Scott Fraser, does not apply to the coastal gas link pipeline meaning the contentious project is going ahead as planned for now. The details of the agreement have not been released. The ministers and chiefs agreed that the arrangement will be shown to all members of the Wet'suwet'en Nation before the ministers return to Smithers for a signing if it is agreed upon. We're speaking uh, with uh, Mr. Ellis Ross, who served six years as a chief councillor of the Heisla Nation in British Columbia, MLA in uh, in British Columbia, member of the... uh, Liberal caucus, and um, was uh, very much in favor of select kinds of resource development. First nations, including the forty billion dollar Kitimat LNG plant, which or LNG project, which uh, involves his Heisler Nation, uh, Mr. Ross, I uh, I just want to read back a tweet to you from you. All these leaders demanding respect, but at the same time showing incredible disrespect to our elected chief and councils, our communities, and more importantly our members, don't expect me to stop fighting for a better future. takes me back to what I just what I asked you at the very beginning, and that is now that this tentative agreement is 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 well been agreed to and work on the the pipeline starts again tomorrow. Are we just going to see, do you think we're going to revisit what we've seen over the last several weeks before the Wet'suwet'en people see the details of the agreement? That's a
4: real good question. I don't know the process on, on how their leaders share information uh, with their members. I know what I did as, as chief counselor. And previously, as an elected counselor for eight years prior to that, I know what I did. And it's it's not written down anywhere how you got to do this unless it's a policy of your your leadership. I didn't wait for policy. I just traveled all over Vancouver, Prince Rupert, Terrace, Kitimat, our Kitimat vote site, and held multiple meetings saying, this is where we're at, this is what we're doing, and we're sticking to the plan that we developed uh, 10 years ago. So that's how I did it.
0: Because one of the concerns that uh, would be raised, and this isn't an original thought, but if it was environmental groups and other activist organizations and anarchists, who were significantly involved in the blockades and causing the difficulties in Canada? And they were—they're not going to wait for an agreement to be read uh, or, or or you know shared with the uh, with the people. They have their own agenda. They uh, they'll do what they what they did before. And we have a compromise. I'll ask you this as a as a provincial politician, as a member of the British Columbia legislature. Um, they've been able to intimidate government. Government hasn't stepped up and and and, and done what they needed to do.
4: Yeah, they actually. Uh, but remember that these spokespeople are are good at, at uh, making it sound like they're talking for the majority of First Nations or the majority of Canadians. The majority of First Nations, the majority of Canadians, are too quiet, and that's why these leaders are, are bending to the will of the minority. I mean, I, I tried to go on a CTV power play last week, and I thought uh, it was going to be a respectful debate about uh, reconciliation. At the end of it. I got yelled at for saying, oh, you know, you can't build a job creation plan based on a project that's going to kill the planet. And that's what these leaders latch on to. They said, we better, we better do something about this because, wow, that's, the minority is screaming pretty loud. So it, the leadership has got to decide. Are you going to decide on the future of a country like Canada based on rhetoric or are you going to go on facts?
0: What, uh, what role in all of this, and this is almost a question that I'm embarrassed to ask but given what we've seen, and given what happened, and given what developed, I have to ask it: What role do governments actually play in resolving and uh, and bringing to an end unlawful activities, um, which, which didn't happen, which uh, did just did not happen? And uh, um, you know, we we heard Mr. Trudeau's response or Mr. Trudeau's actions described as timid. What role does the government have, and do you see anything changes changing from what we've experienced over the last few weeks if it starts up again?
4: No, I, I, I think they've laid out what their role is going to be going forward. Uh, they'll allow uh, unlawful blockades, activities. Uh, they'll allow it. Meanwhile, if a, if a citizen goes and walks a kid along the sea and tracks, they'll get charged, they'll get fined. Yep. So it's a total... I don't know. The question was: Is whether or not Canada is a nation or an ocean?
0: That was the question. That was the question the Premier Higgs of New Brunswick asked on this program. Uh, let's get that sound, get that clip up, please. I want to play it for uh, uh, for Mr. Ellis and uh, Mr. Ross. He uh, he said the Premier of New Brunswick said, "Is Canada a nation or an ocean?" And it's something that we have to decide. Let me ask. Let me before we, as we, as we look for that particular audio clip. There's a lot of questions now about whether or not uh, investors, international investors, even domestic investors, will be interested in putting money into energy development in Canada. The oil sands are particularly pointed out with uh, as, with, with tech having withdrawn its uh, its interest in Alberta. Um, so there's a lot of talk about about that. Uh, Do you have uh, do you have concerns that 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 investors will turn away from Canada from energy projects in this country because the environmental assessments take a very long period of time and even when they're satisfied and when First Nations are in agreement, the federal government still comes back and delivers its verdict after everything else has taken place.
4: Oh, it's already been happening for many years, Canadian. uh investors are already going, fleeing to the United States, not, not just because of what you just mentioned, but because taxes are too high. The red tape is too high. Uh, and so the only people who come into Canada that actually uh, invest in Canada are the ones with the bigger and deeper pockets. So Canada, you're just playing at the United States' game. They got no taxes. They got no red tape. They actually incentivize companies from all over the world to locate in the United States. Uh, we're, we're getting outplayed on all levels.
0: Here's what uh, Premier Blaine Higgs of New Brunswick said on this program.
1: It makes you wonder if our if, if Canada is a nation or an ocean.
0: And that, uh, Mr. Ellis, was after he attended his first premier's conference, when he sat down for the first time as premier of New Brunswick with his fellow premiers and with the prime minister. He came away with that question, is Canada a nation or an ocean? That was two years ago.
4: Where was that? Was that in
0: Vancouver? Or was that uh, no? That was a, that was on this program. We did an interview with uh, with uh, with Premier Higgs and with Premier Moe. and we were talking about the divisions that existed in, while the premiers were having their discussions. And uh, so Premier Higgs came back with that. We have to decide. You know, we're either going to move forward together or we're not going to move forward together. Quebec had a role to play in that as well as they block. Uh, you know, a Pipe Energy East or pipelines moving from uh, from Western Canada, from Alberta specifically, through through Quebec to uh, to to uh, Saint John's or Saint John rather. Um, so yeah, he's this. What, what what really stood out to me is it's his first meeting with his fellow premiers, and he comes away with we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean.
4: So I I got all my my. Uh my knowledge from being a leader for my band for 15 years. Mm. And and I slowly understood that a lot of the the stuff we're dealing with just didn't matter. And we had to focus on something that actually put us onto a better uh, future. What I do see, and I'm not sure if this has been historically correct for Canada, is that uh, I don't see it as whether or not we're a nation or an ocean. I see it as there's got to be a line in the sand drawn when it comes down to governance versus politics. I mean, politics is necessary. We all know that. But when you get into government, you've got to stop playing politics. You've got to govern as as a responsible government. I I think that a lot of the governments today are forgetting that.
0: I think you're right. And I think police were politicized. And and I agree fully with you when you said the word reconciliation was used over and over and over. Uh, Reconciliation is required. And uh, there are ways to accomplish this, uh, which, are, which are not being uh, undertaken. But I, I was wondering myself, how does what's going on now factor into reconciliation? I I had difficulty connecting the dots.
4: Well, reconciliation has been achieved in, in terms of this LNG pipeline for the last 15 years. It has been achieved in our territory for forestry for the last 12 years. I mean, the definition of reconciliation comes uh, in case law. And basically what it says is, you know, we've we got to reconcile because, let's face it, none of us are going anywhere. And by the way, if we do our best to consult and accommodate, the Crown still has to make a decision in light of the larger society. Now, if you think about the largest society in today's terms, First Nations make up that larger society because we all enjoy the services that Canada provides. So that's what we've been doing here. We've been reconciling for 15 years, rather successfully, and it helped strengthen Canada. It didn't weaken it
0: now reconciliation is absolutely necessary it's how it's accomplished and when it's undertaken and it can't be undertaken selectively for a couple of weeks it has to be an ongoing reality and as you say that's been going on for 50 years but i don't think with the kind of uh, commitment that, that that we should have seen mr or we should be saying mr ross thank you very much for your time today i hope you'll come back yeah no problem Now, there's so much talk, and we've been involved with it, and you have with us, about the situations that are developing in this country, the crisis that we're facing with the blockades and the shutdown of our rail and the economic challenges and national unity issues. So I found it very interesting when I came across uh, two news stories last week, and uh, they have to do with Canada and where this country ranks internationally as far as quality of life is concerned as well as in overall best country rankings. Michael Sussman is the global CEO of VMLY&R and the BAV Group, the marketing firm, and they conducted international surveys. Mr. Sussman, thank you very much for for the time.
3: Um, No problem. My pleasure.
0: So uh, you know that we have some internal issues in this country, and We've been working we our tr- trying to work our way through them. And th- then I see your 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 studies and your results, your survey results, which are fascinating to me. Uh, how long first of all, how long have you been doing this?
3: Um, we're in our fifth year in partnership with the u s. News and World Report and, um, and warden um, School of Business. Um, so this is our fifth year of tracking um country equity.
0: Okay, and uh, so when it comes to quality of life, Canada's number one in the world.
3: yes, it's 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 a pretty strong brand it, across the board. I mean, um, and that's really what's helping pull it up because quality of life is a big indicator of, of, of actually nascent success in terms of GDP and growth and, and business success. Yeah. So it is a big driver of what it takes to be a strong nation. You can't just have strong um, resources. You have to have a place where people want to work and live.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the rankings here. Canada's number one. Denmark is number two. And then it's Sweden, followed by Norway and Australia. And then the rankings continue down to mm-hmm. uh, as long as far as you get them. But we're number one. What what were some of the issues that established Canada? The some of the parameters that established Canada number one internationally for quality of life.
3: Yeah. So it, when you start to look well there's definitely a sense of um, watching out for people's individual rights, and that's a big part of that. So very supportive of LGBTQ community and individuals. Um, It's a very safe place, at least it's globally seen as a very safe place, that cares about citizens, cares about individuality. It's much more welcoming. So I think some of that um, mentality is very positive and very welcoming, particularly when we see this kind of polarization happening in in, in other countries.
0: Well, let me ask you, uh, how does Canada compare to the United States in quality of life?
3: Um, It it beats out um, Canada. I mean, it beats out the U.S. in quality of life, The U.S. does not rank in the top five, actually. um, It's Canada, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, then Australia in terms of quality of life.
0: Did you actually speak with Canadians about this? Did you you talk to the people of the various countries you survey?
3: Yes. So we spoke to about 21, a little over 21,000 people, 21,400 people. Some of those are influencers and business leaders and also um, everyday citizens. And we did this across countries. Um, So, yes, Canadians were part of this, but... um, some of the stats we 're talking about now are, are global averages.
0: Where were we last year? What position were we in?
3: Last year you were number three overall, and now you 're up from number two. Um, you 've maintained the number one rank of quality of life, so that's an, an, actually you 've c- continued to maintain that mm-hmm. um, and you 've actually gained also on things like open for business and you know so being receptive to which also helped move you up a rank overall
0: so number one in the world for quality of life among nations. Now, when it comes to overall rankings uh, in the world, overall performance, I guess, Switzerland's number one, Canada's number two. Yes. Uh, what's that ranking uh, for? What, sure. what does that so establish?
3: That's based on nine dimensions that we, we rate countries on. And again, this is about how, are, how do these dimensions impact the, 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 the GDP and the, and the business success and growth of a nation. So it's more about the financial side of success. Um, and And there are nine dimensions. So some of the things that we look at countries on about heritage and adventure, while they may be very important to tourism, they're not very big impactors in terms of GDP, for instance. So we looked at the, and so it's a weighted score of these nine dimensions. It's about being an entrepreneurial, welcoming country, quality of life, citizenship. Are you a mover? Are you an inventor, innovator? That's another dimension. Cultural influence. Um, That's something where that's a bit of a weakness in, in, in Canada. So that's. Italy, France, Spain, U.S., they dominate on cultural influence. But those are less drivers of business success.
0: So uh, uh, explain the cultural uh, realities here. Where does, you say, a bit of a weakness for this country in what sense?
3: Sure. Let me. I'm going to quickly pull out some stats for you here. Mm-hmm. Um, apologize. For cultural, no, it's okay. Give me the,
0: I'm speaking uh, with Michael Sussman. He's the global CEO of VML, Y&R, and the BAV Group, or BAV Group, Marketing firm, and they've done these surveys and studies on quality of life in the world, Canada number one, overall rankings in nations, Canada number two to Switzerland
3: right and so for, so for instance, food um, you know that's not something you get a lot of credit for, for instance, or um, I'm kind um, cultural influence so style and innovation, free trade are areas where you're lagging a little bit, um, but not bad. Um, Again, it feels like a lot of your strengths are all around citizenship and all around, um, and less so necessarily like if it doesn't do very well on sexy, right? Not that you would want to or not, but that's something about cultural influence. Popularity has a rich history, are lagging dimensions. Um, not super strong on religious and, and sexy and strong military and great food. And overall on, has a cultural influence, you ranked 46 out of 73. Mm. So that side is where you're challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, your strengths are about political stability, respect for property rights, transparent business practices, transparent government, trust in infrastructure, public health, pharmaceutical. You, you have lots of strength there as well.
0: Okay. So now, how is this information put to use?
3: Um, a, a, a multiple of ways, actually. So, you know, obviously for tourism, it's something, you know, I'm working for a global um, marketing agency. Um, you know, we do pitch and we do work with tourism companies. Or, um, and I'm actually speaking with the German embassy on Thursday in the U.S. to talk about what their country means. But we also use it to think about um, how does how does a brand leverage it. So what is the power of Made in Canada, for instance? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And so some of its so German engineering, for instance, is something that makes a big difference. Um, and the more German a car is seen, the stronger it is. So there are, you know, we call this the Origins Index, and you can start to quantify the impact of of, of a country on a sector. Okay. And Canada does pretty well on some of them. It does really well on cosmetics, ranking number three. Okay. Um, Media and entertainment, number three. Pharmaceuticals, number two, not a big surprise. Healthcare, number one. So those are things that you get a lot of credit for as a made-in-Canada kind of mindset.
0: All right. Mr. Sussman, much appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Have a great day. You
0: too. Laura Lau manages uh, uh, $2 billion in assets at Brompton Corp in Toronto. And um, we're joined by Ms. Lau on this issue of investment in energy projects in the oil sands in Alberta. Ms. Lau, thank you very much for the time. Is it over as far as investors are concerned, uh, putting money, you know, starting to put money into projects in the oil sands?
5: i think it'll be very difficult to convince investors that it's a good investment uh, we've had time and time again uh the government not supportive of projects and whether it be oil projects or even pipeline projects because we need to get the oil to market and it's been very difficult to get any big energy projects off the ground in canada
0: and this has been some time in coming Has it not? I mean, the word, I understand that investors already a number of years ago were sending letters to the federal government saying, please uh, get your house in order as far as investing in energy projects in the oil sands is concerned, because we're concerned about putting our money into it. And if you put a billion dollars into satisfying the regulatory process, and then you still don't hear from the government, that's got to be very discouraging.
5: And also your investors are going to call you on the carpet. A billion dollars, where did it all go? It just evaporated. And the federal government's not going to give you that money back.
0: Yeah. Uh, What does this mean to Canada?
5: I think one thing we have to realize is our standard of living is connected to resource development. And we as a country have to get our act in order. And it's not just resource projects. Uh, with Bill C 69, it's much more difficult to get any energy project, and that can be like transmission projects for energy. It could be hydroelectric dams. So, we as a country need power, we need energy. So, what are we going to do?
0: What are we going to do? Because we have it readily available, we have a clean way. Uh, compared to the rest of the world, we have ethical oil, as has been said many times. We have a clean way of getting our our energy to the international marketplace. But now, um, you're con- you're 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 convinced that energy or investors are going to say, "Why would I risk billions of dollars in in a country where I don't know what the outcome is going to be?"
5: It's already happening. We're already having capital flee Canada. So it's sad to see.
0: How would you, uh, is there a way out of this?
5: I think that the government, the federal government, has to show leadership. And we need all three levels of government. uh, That includes provincial and also the local governments, because we've had even some of the local governments uh, block, whether it's the courts or other ways of not getting, you know, resource projects through.
0: It's stunning, really, isn't it? that these developments are really stunning that we would that we would actually create this kind of difficulty for ourselves financially economically socially and with our with our costs for running our social programs and our national health care system and talk about a pharmaceutical uh, system in place and maybe a dental programs where's the money coming from
5: we don't have the money but uh, that's part of the problem so we've seen the taxes go up, but we really haven't seen any benefit. Mm-hmm. And I would say companies have seen their costs go up without you know any benefit.
0: Let me ask you this. Uh, it's a question I need to ask. Given the fact that you've got um, oil prices are low now and they, they fluctuate, uh, how, much of a, how much of a factor is that? Or is that not really much of a factor if a major investor says, I'm into this for 20 or 30 years?
5: I think it is a major factor because it's not just the oil price, it's also the volatility of the oil price. Mm-hmm. So oil is, unfortunately, a very volatile commodity. It's one of the most connected to economic growth. So if there's any uncertainty over economic growth, whether it be the coronavirus or, you know, or you know, how much oil there is in the world, then yes, it becomes much more difficult to sanction these
0: projects. But right now, the concern, the fundamental concern, or the major concern for the investor is the uncertainty as far as getting a project approved in Canada. You can go through all the regulatory requirements. You can have First Nations signing on and supporting the project, but the government is still dragging its heels. You've got Bill C-69. That's that's the anchor, isn't it?
5: Yes, and just all the uncertainty. So, for instance, even Petronas LNG that. Project. They said, oh, yeah, we have a process, but then they'd stop and start the regulatory approval constantly. And then they dragged it out so long that
0: we said, forget it. Ms. Lau, I have to go, but I thank you so much for the time, and we'll ask you back. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend.